Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast, which is a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. Today we are talking with my friend Sanjay Rawal about his new film, Gather. Sanjay is one of the most thoughtful people I know. He is a fantastic storyteller, and he is a maker of films that, while they might seem to have a pretty narrow and specific focus, in actuality, these films have a really wide-ranging applicability and relevance. And this is most definitely true of Sanjay's latest film, Gather, which Sanjay directed, and the extremely talented Renan Ozturk served as the cinematographer. Gather tells the story of the growing food sovereignty movement among Native American tribes across the United States, which is both a history and a current cultural development that I suspect too many of us know too little about. So I promise that this film will teach you some new things, and it will also make you reevaluate your own relationship to food and to land and to a lot of other things. Gather can be screened online this Thursday, June 11th through June 20th, and there will be a link in the show notes to this episode where you can find the film, and you can also watch the trailer to the film, and you can also find the film on social media channels at Gather Film. Finally, if you'd like to hear some other conversations that we've had with Sanjay, where you'll also get to learn a lot more about his background, well, he was the very first guest of ours on our Off the Couch podcast, and then we had him back on to kick off this new decade we're in, so you can hear him again over on our Off the Couch podcast. That's episode number 33. So I'd encourage you to check those conversations out. And now let's get to my most recent conversation with Sanjay Rawal. Well, Sanjay, how are you today and where are you today? I am in Queens, New York City. I've been here since the, the lockdown started. And, mm -hmm. you know, like a few other big cities in America, our city's actually under curfew now, which is really just hard for me to even say. Well, Sanjay, before we really start getting into this bigger conversation about Gather, why don't you tell people what this film is, in fact, about? Thanks, Jonathan. In a, in a snapshot, we follow three characters uh, in different parts of the country, in Indian country, on their own tribal land, uh, who are trying to radically reimagine their food system. Most Native American reservations are at the very end of supply chains. They're basically food deserts. Uh, we follow a chef in eastern Arizona on the White Mountain Apache Reservation. The uh, White Mountain Apache actually was the first Native American reservation to own their own ski resort. Um, so there's, there's a little mountain out there called White Mountain. Um, and our chef, Nephi Craig, He's actually you know, a high-end French-trained chef who's trying to put a, 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 an indigenous high-end cafe on his reservation, completely affordable, but reintroducing his people to their ancestral foods. Um, we follow uh, a young woman from South Dakota, just south of the, the Standing Rock Reservation, 
uh, whose dad is a bison farmer, a buffalo rancher, uh, and, and, you know, is trying desperately to bring buffalo back to the plains. And she grew up walking amongst herds of bison. And, you know, we have a, a, a director of photography who many of your listeners might know, a guy named Renan Ozturk, who yeah. was the, one, one of the stars of Meru. And so Renan literally took his camera and walked through buffalo herds. And buffalo is not the safest <laughs> animal to be around, yeah. but, you know, he, he likes that adrenaline rush. And we followed some kids living on some still wild rivers up in Northern California, the Trinity River. They live at the mouth of the Klamath River, traditional salmon people, and looking at the issues they're contending with from poverty to um, racism and the presence of this massive dam on their spiritual home. Yeah, that's a good synopsis. And the, the main characters in this film are all kind of amazing. I mean, just terrific. And uh, so just getting to be introduced to these people, like into your world, kind of reason enough to watch this film, let alone every other thing you're going to learn along the way. So yeah, good synopsis there. And and by the way, Sanjay, I should say, uh, Renan has been on the podcast. So he's, oh, cool. he's, he's way ahead of you here. So, you know, Normally, normally I think of you as being the kind of the pioneer, but not this time. No, not by a long shot. <laughs> Talk a little bit about some of the other film projects you've been involved with. As some of your listeners might know who listen to your other pod, Off the Couch, mm -hmm. uh, my most recent film was on the surface about ultra-distance running called 3100 Run and Become. We focused on the world's longest ultramarathon, the self-transcendence 3,100-mile race that takes place in my neighborhood in Queens. But a couple of side narratives uh, involve some pretty serious human rights stories. As those who've seen the movie know, we went to Botswana to spend time with the persecuted San Bushmen, uh, some of the, the last people on earth to truly practice persistence hunting on foot. We spent time running with an incredible Navajo ultramarathoner uh, you know, who also went through the the amazing history of his people and the kind of terrible injustices that they've suffered in the last couple of decades. But my first film was on farm labor in the agricultural supply chain. It's called Food Chains. It's on Hulu and uh, Netflix and YouTube. I actually made that film with Eva Longoria and Forrest Whitaker narrated it. Uh, we looked at the kind of deep, deep structural problems with the Amer American agricultural system from the lens of a small group of farm workers in Florida that rose up and really, you know, through their protests, through being on the streets, through activism and not clicktivism, uh, not online stuff, but, you know, getting out, raising their voices, being citizens and getting people who considered themselves as consumers uh, to act like they were citizens of America and, and using their voice to eradicate modern-day slavery, sexual harassment, wage theft in the fields of Florida and now up and down the East Coast. Hmm. So, in other words, you have been thinking about food and food systems for a while. I mean, my dad was in agriculture in California, and even though I grew up in Oakland, you know, most of his work was in the Central Valley. So even I would never consider myself as coming from a farming family, but I came from a family deeply invested in the soil. And so, you know, a couple of circumstances led me to a film that is coming out at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, which is digital because of COVID. 
Um, it's going to run online from June 11th through June 20th. Uh, and you know, then the film is going to be released later this summer on, on uh, Amazon and iTunes. It's a film that's being executive produced, actually, by indigenous Hawaiian activist and superhero, Jason Momoa. And um, it's about the Native American food system, the struggle for food sovereignty, the struggle for land rights, the struggle to be able to feed yourself in the way you want, while at the same time understanding that the destruction of your food system from the 1500s onward was a major tactic of colonization and of genocide. It's a heavy topic, it's, it's, and there's a, a lot of similarities with, with food chains and the, the past work I've done looking at the inherent inequities in America. But as Food Chains was an incredibly positive, uplifting movie, Gather also focuses on a few very incredible activists in Indian country, in Native American territory, that are succeeding against all odds to radically transform their own people's futures and taking their destiny into their own hands. So you've touched on this a, a bit, but can you say a bit more specifically, like how did you, how did you like specifically come to get involved with this particular story? You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Indian. I'm not the right, not the right kind of Indian. Um, <laughs> as a, a joke, that, that joke's going to get old real soon, but I still like it. You know, the very first documentary ever, ever made was called Nanook of the North. And it was, you know, I'm, I'm going to use some terms here just for the sake of it. I'm going to use terms of color. I'm going to say white people. I'm going to say African-Americans and nobody listening should, you know, feel one way or another. I'm from India. We believe in reincarnation. No, colors, karma falls on the shoulders of individuals in my belief in this one particular life. You have a duty as a human being to be a good person and that's it. So with, with that framing, Nanook of the North was, was made by a, a white filmmaker uh, way back when, and it was about a story of an Inuit uh, boy or an Inuit man. And that launched the documentary industry. For, for those who know a little bit about movie history, the first couple of decades of documentary filmmaking weren't about like real time storytelling. You know, you, you didn't have the equipment even to sync audio with your video. So a lot of it was narrated. It was the old kind of anthropological style of filmmaking. So out of this new technology, this new form of storytelling, coupled with the incredible oppression in Indian country, uh, started an industry, and for the ensuing decades, Native American kids would quote-unquote learn about their people's history, the history of the first peoples in North America, through the eyes of majority white filmmakers. And that's a problem. And, you know, storytelling on any level when it comes to documentary involves exploitation. You know, I'm going to go into a community, whether they're East Indian or American Indian or white or black or anybody, and I'm going to ask people to tell me their story so that I can share them with my ambition to be a storyteller with the world. That's exploitative. And when it comes to Native American stories, outsiders telling these stories is exploit exploitative times a thousand. Hmm. So I, I, I wouldn't have ever dared make a film about this topic. But one of the most kind of progressive and, and, and vaunted Native American 
philanthropic bodies, which is actually based in Longmont, Colorado, called First Nations Development Institute. Mm-hmm. They'd seen food chains, um, and they'd seen the 3100 Run and Become, and you know, they wanted to talk to me about making this new film called Gather. And I couldn't say no to their invitation, mm-hmm. and we discussed it. They determined that I, I, I wouldn't screw it up, and I told them that you know, if you guys are willing to work with me and to ensure that I don't screw it up, I think we'll make a good film, and hopefully we have. Hmm. Isn't it like amazing how the world works? And I, I always just think of this in terms of the advantage of being alive like another day that because this was one of the big questions I had for you, like how, like, like you to use your term, you're not the right kind of Indian. So how did you get involved with this? And it's like, well, because I made this other film that was talking about food systems and, and this then puts you in a position to go explore these issues in a whole different way and setting and community. And I find that stuff fascinating and like these connections and how we end up getting from point A to point B to whatever point C is in our lives. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy for me because like, you know, 75% of the variety of foods around the world came from indigenous, the indigenous Western hemisphere. Hmm. You know, before the mid 1500s, there was no such thing as marinara sauce. You know, until the 1600s, there weren't Irish potatoes. Even in my part of the world, in East India and Southeast Asia, we didn't have anything with capsaicin. We didn't have hot chilies, much less potatoes um, or tomatoes until the mid-1600s. So the entire, basically the entire global diet, even African cassava came from the New World. The entire global diet was a product of European commercial colonization. Now, if it had just been for the spread of resources or the spread of good ideas, that would have been one thing. But, you know, in in the early 1500s, to kind of justify greed, uh, the Roman Catholic Church basically proclaimed the moral and spiritual superiority of white Europeans uh, to justify the idea or the, the, the tactic of destroying cultures to capture inherent resources, to extract resources. And that became the, the MO of that quote unquote, you know, enlightenment Western society to, and their push all around the world for uh, enriching their own countries at the, to the detriment of, of the countries that they visited. So all that said, you know, my country, India, we, we were, you know, the richest country in the world for millennia. Up until about 1500 AD, we accounted for almost a quarter of the world's GDP. Um, but it was only in the last 300, 400 years that, you know, the country was colonized by the British and we're still, you know, you know building from that. Um, so just to say that it's like the history that most of us learn in school doesn't start in like 5000 BC. It really starts just a few decades really before 1776 and maybe a couple dates before that, like 1492. Mm -hmm. Um, And to kind of put that all into context in this movie Gather has just been, you know, a fantastic and, you know, mind-blowing experience. There's a very 
uh, well, let's just say sobering moment in the film. And, you know, we should say, like, this is, I would actually describe this as a pretty quiet film, given the, I would call it, it there is an intensity to it, but this, um, given the stakes of the film, it was very interesting for me, like, watching how you guys touched on a number of these extremely violent aspects of history, right? Right? Like, there would have been a maybe different way to kind of tell this. Um, that's maybe a question for a little bit later in this conversation, but there is a moment, I think it was something in around like the 1850s where it's talking about the building up of quote unquote Indian schools. And you've got, you know, this uh, white principal standing there surrounded by Indian students talking about, you know, this is great. We are now, we have an opportunity to introduce these savages to the civilized world. And it is just, it's tough. It's a tough watch and probably not made any less tough in light of things that are happening um, in our current society. I don't know. I mean, I, in in a snapshot, like you know, the 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 Pilgrims coming to Massachusetts was really the first non-military settlement on the East Coast, and people know the story. They tried their hand at farming, and they didn't do a good job. And Native Americans, the the Mashpee Wampanoag tribes up there, had to kind of lend them a hand. Then, as another year progressed, and the Pilgrims realized that they sucked at farming, and they didn't have the ability to really start farms from scratch. What they did was they killed all the, the Native Americans just to take their farms. And the initial farming economy that started up and down the East Coast wasn't Europeans coming to a wild country. The country was very much tamed already by Native Americans who'd been here for 10,000 years. They came and they stole farms and they kept pushing natives westward. In fact, there was something called the Stamp Act of 1763 where the British bade colonists from crossing the Appalachian Mountains. Basically because the British didn't have the, the, the manpower to secure the settlements that, that American farmers wanted to take. And the American farmers are pushing westward because they'd monocropped all the farms on the East Coast. I mean, this is a simplification. They'd monocropped all the farms on the East Coast and the, and the, the, the land was fallow. Um, so they wanted to push to Indiana, they wanted to push to Ohio, called the Northwestern Territories then, and steal Pawnee land, steal Pawnee farms. At the same time, you know, America obviously was, um, um, in the South, it was a, a slave economy. And so the roots of the Second Amendment are twofold. These so-called militias that were guaranteed their existence were active to do two things. They were active to capture runaway slaves, and they were active to maintain the rights of farmers who had stolen Native American land. You had to be able to have guns stashed all up and down your farm to be able to grab them at a moment's notice if Native Americans wanted to come and take their land back. So they say one of the very first, you know, one, one of the, the genesis of the Revolutionary War was in fact the Stamp Act, which prevented Americans from taking, colonists from taking more land. That's the backdrop. Ever since then, as people know, Native Americans were stripped of their land on the East Coast, sent across the Mississippi where they were told they would never, ever be touched again. 
Uh, and then Jefferson bought the Louisiana Purchase, and you know Native Americans began to be organized into quote reservations, technically the worst land that they possibly could be given. But by the late 1800s, you know, uh, society realized that much of that rocky land had resources underneath, like oil. And there was a whole push to strip the rights from Native Americans of, for, you know, on their new land for those resources. And we continue to see that policy. And the, and the, the long, short story long, what you talked about was the effective kidnapping of Native American kids from their families to, de- to, to de-Indianize them and make them Christian. Hmm. Um, and that was a practice that continued until 1977. So that, that's, that's a history snapshot. Mm-hmm. Where are we going? Where, do you, where should we take this now, Sanjay? Well, you know, we're, we're obviously at, at, at a very pivotal time in the history of our country. You know, my, my first film, Food Chains, really looked at the rise of the agricultural economy of the U.S. from slavery to the, the prevalence of slave-like conditions in the fields today. Now, of course, it's not chattel slavery, but, you know, farm workers are paid by the piece. It was, it's the, every, you know, they're not paid by the hour, but they're, they're paid by how much they pick, whether it's a bushel, whether it's a basket, whether it's by pound or by bucket, and that's exactly how cotton slaves were compensated. The people that picked bushels were given what's called a chit, like a little tag, and at the end of the day, you turned in those tags, and if you met certain thresholds, maybe you got you know, rewarded, but if you didn't meet those thresholds, you got whipped. And although the whipping and beating isn't this isn't you know really in existence anymore the, the way it was 150 years ago. Those same systems exist, and that's why the food system has some of the poorest people in it. Um, at the same time, if we're going to use the word sin, the second original sin, or one might say the first original sin, was the the wide scale theft of land. Hmm. But for me, you know, it's like the interesting thing, you know, on a on a personal level is the fact that we're living in such a beautiful country that has an incredible amount of natural beauty and all of your listeners you know don't need to be reminded of that but at the same time you know while the the beauty is was relatively maintained by those who came into the country you know the food system that was here was incredibly vibrant and and you know as we kind of push for more local more natural more healthy food unconsciously we're pushing back towards the system that had always been here. Again, it's like corns, beans, tomatoes, avocados, pineapple, you know, all of these things are indigenous to North America. And the variety is that times a million. But most of the knowledge of these local food systems was destroyed when Native Americans were moved off the land or when they were forced into schools where they weren't allowed to speak languages or when they were forced to learn from teachers in schools rather than their elders. And so Gather is really about the kind of revival of this place-based knowledge. And oh man, it's like that movement is going to make life so much more tasty for all of us. I'm curious how keyed in you are to what's happening in, you know, kind of other food system issues around the country. Like I'm just thinking of you know, the urban farming movement and things like that. Does that feel just sort of too different from what we're talking about in Gather 
Um, or what, what's kind of your take on that? that that's, that's a great question. So if, if we look at the way the agricultural economy began, it was, you know, large-scale commodities in the South. But, you know, there, you know the, the, our, our food was produced by and, by and large by small-scale farmers since that time. It wasn't until the mid-80s when Walmart got into the grocery business and they changed the philosophy to, you know, buy a lot and spend very little um, or buy a lot and make very little. But since you're selling a lot, you can aggregate that gross into a, a, a large, um, you know, to a large dollar amount. I mean, Walmart's grocery division sells almost $400 billion gross, um, gross dollars of, of groceries every year. Google internationally makes about $40 billion gross. So Walmart's grocery system is much more revenue generating than Google is. I mean, obviously that's gross and not profit. But that said, it's like, you know, the food system has been perverted because of large scale agriculture. And we see that when economics alone drive agriculture, you know, you don't have much variety, even at Whole Foods. There's like three kinds of tomatoes, whereas in the wild, there are thousands of kinds of tomatoes. There are 10 kinds of olive oils, even though in Europe, there's like a thousand different kinds of olive oils. But when you're a non-Whole Foods customer and you're living in an urban area, the economics aren't in your favor because you don't have that much to spend. And so we see things like food deserts, where you can live in an area in Detroit, for example, and be miles away from a grocery store. And if you don't have a car, you know, you're spending three hours going to the grocery store and back by bus. So there has been a movement, and this is similar to what's going on in Gather. There's been a movement to reclaim land for food. I mean, it all seems so obvious that we should take care of our land, our water, and our air, because those are literally the three things that we need to sustain ourselves. Um, right now, technology is in increasing human lifespan except for those who don't have access to good water, to good food, and to good air. Uh, so the idea of use, using land properly really rolls into an effective human rights policy. And when you see a lot of the protests right now that are happening, I mean, that's fundamentally because, you know, after the Civil War, after the 13th Amendment, as new immigrants from Europe and white settlers were being given land throughout the Western settlements and throughout the, the Western states, um, land stripped from Native Americans. African Americans who had come from hundreds of years of bondage weren't given land at all. If you don't have land, and especially in an agricultural economy, you can't grow food, you can't sell food, you don't have any sort of um, wealth to pass on to subsequent generations. I mean, the average African-American family of four is worth $10,000, where the average white family of four has $194,000 in generational wealth. So when you look at land, you look at the idea that land is used as wealth, that land is used as food, you start seeing people in these urban areas reclaiming land that they never had access to, reclaiming public land that never went to them and repurposing it for food gardens in the same way that Native Americans are beginning to reclaim their place in the agricultural supply chain by growing their own food rather than depending on food deliveries and grocery stores. One of the things I love about 
the film Gather is that I think a film like this for some reason, or maybe I'm just kind of too dull, but I think sometimes it's possible to see like, okay, what's this? It's some movie about food and indigenous people. And you think like, well, all right, maybe I'll spend an hour and 15 minutes watching this and learning about their situation. And the thing is, you get about two or three minutes into this film, and I just can't imagine anyone watching this and not having it pop off so many new questions, so many new perspectives and ways in, yes, very much learning about this specific story, but also just doing that like, all right, huh, what's my own relationship with food and food and culture? And how about in other areas of the country and the world? And um, I don't know, it's kind of sneaky of you, I think, Sanjay, because it does feel like I mean, I think the best the best stories do this, I suppose, but it seems so specific. But then you get into it and you're just like, I just really believe that the people who watch this are going to find themselves thinking about, I, I'm not even going to say what, I'm not sure always what exactly. This is one of those kind of perspective changers, I think. I don't know if you've had any other feedback about the film, but that's one of my biggest takeaways, I think. I mean, that's really nice of you to say, Jonathan. I mean, look, look, at the beginning of the pandemic, what were people most worried about besides toilet paper? I mean, we, mm. we were worried about food. Yeah. People were going and stocking up like, you know, there wasn't going to be any food for the next six months. We do that because we no longer, as Europeans, as Native Americans, we no longer spend the time we used to on food. Most people, not all, most people don't have their own gardens. They're not pickling. They're not preserving. They're not drying. People aren't going out and, you know, fishing when the runs are coming up the river and drying that fish for, you know, later in the year. Uh, People aren't necessarily hunting, you know, and keeping that meat as as their product for the rest of the year. So in a sense, when when crap hits the fan, we are all food insecure. Mm -hmm. And is that sustainable? Well, it was sustainable for a couple months, but not if you were a person that relied on the the twelve hundred dollars stimulus check. You know, not if you're a person who's seeing your food stamps and other benefits getting cut and slashed. You know, a lot of times it's like the quote oppressed are the only ones that make any change in this country because they have to make the changes that the rest of us are unwilling to make because of discomfort. You know, if we'd had those gardens, if we'd had the public gardens in a lot of our cities, whether it's Boulder, whether it's Detroit, you know, a lot of people would have been a lot more secure during this pandemic than we were. And this has just been two and a half months. I mean, imagine if it was a year and a half or two years long. Right. I mean, right now, farm worker communities in Southern Florida, where I made made food chains, are testing 50% positive for COVID-19. And when you start seeing that devastation in the labor force in the U.S. and in Mexico, you know, it's going to be a, a time of reckoning for the rest of us who don't have our own little gardens. And that's me in New York City. I'm going to have to learn how to hunt squirrels and pigeons. <laughs> this should be the next film. We're going to have to get Renan uh, committed uh, on this project. And then I'd like to somehow be involved because you learning to hunt squirrels and pigeons. 
I I just need to be in on that. So let oh, me. Man, I, I was I was I was an Eagle Scout. Like I've I've had my share of squirrels. Okay. Um, ne- never 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 pigeons, but squirrels. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. You got to take your shots in life. So I'm I'm coming with a big question now. I mean, this is I think a timeless question, but it's certainly uh, a question that we've been talking a lot about in the United States. I'd say for the last couple years, and this film certainly is relevant, I think, to the question. But I want to ask about like this notion of protest. And, you know, it seems like the conversation these days, and it maybe started in a very big way with Colin Kaepernick in in one, you know, strain, like the appropriate or inappropriate ways to protest or revolt. And I don't know. Um, Like I said, this comes up in the film Gather as a bit of a question, and you get to see some of the things that um, the communities in this film are doing on their end. But what are your thoughts on this? It's it's a great question because, you know, my my spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy, was a student of a man named Sri Aurobindo, an Indian... uh, freedom fighter turned sage that was the exact opposite of Gandhi. And in fact, you know, India's first epic, the Bhagavad Gita, was the story or the conversation of two great warriors on the precipice of a, of a, a, a history-changing battle. And that, that was the spiritual teacher Krishna and his student Arjuna. So I don't come from the school of silence. I don't come from the, the school of, of not attracting violence to your protests. In fact, in India, although protests were peaceful, and I'm all for that, the, the protests, they attracted violence, the, the powerful ones. Like in northern India, people might remember this from the movie Gandhi, you know, a hundred peaceful protesters were shot and killed in a market by the British. And that's what got people's attention. You know, when Martin Luther King was, the Reverend Martin Luther King was, was marching, they were choosing their marches to incite white violence. Because people peacefully marching, they don't make the news, but people being attacked by dogs, being attacked by or sprayed by fire hoses, that's what brings the news. People being, people, you know, being submissive in the face of horrific violence, that's what brings the news. So, yeah, like inciting violence, like looting, etc. I mean, that, that's a, a factor of a lot of things. You know, some of it is greed. Some of it is is just sheer anger, but by far and away, the protests that really shocked people more than anything else were, you know, the, the White House protest from a couple of days ago where mm-hmm. people were, were protesting peacefully, um, but in a way that attracted violence, that attracted tear gassing, that where, where reverends were, were, were shot with, with, with uh, rubber bullets, people cleared violently out of a church ground for a photo op. And so when it comes to the, the worth of protest, nothing in this country has ever happened in terms of positive change without violence. If you look at the, the, the looting of the, you know, the British frigate that had a lot of tea on it and the, 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 that, the Boston Tea Party, if you look at the Civil War, if you look at the enduring images of the Civil Rights Movement, if you look at the American Indian Movement, if you look at the, the, the standoff you know, at, at Oglala you know, on the the Lakota Nation, if you look at anything positive that's ever happened in this country, it's been because the 
poor have risen up and have been met with violence. So, you know, protesting with guns doesn't really work in this country, but protesting in front of armed people with guns pointed at you, especially when those guns begin going off, whether with metal bullets or rubber-coated metal bullets, that's what shocks people, you know, into believing the oppressed that their rights are actually, you know, inferior on, you know, in reality than, than for the rest of us. I mean, I'm in New York City. We, we, we have a curfew. It's like I would have never thought in this country that we would have a curfew. I mean, I, I, I wasn't in Katrina uh, in Louisiana. There was a curfew there. You know, I would have never thought that the American military would be out on the streets in Los Angeles. But for those who live in Indian country in, you know, 2018, they suffered the brunt of a massive military occupation in, at Standing Rock. You know, so it's like these forces are out there. They're out there to keep the oppressed down. But things begin to change when the oppressed and allies, particularly allies who don't come from the same class, the allies who are coming from the same socioeconomic place as the, quote, oppressors, when they join forces, things change. And we're seeing that change right now. I mean, and you know, we're seeing, you know, the, the lens on police violence you know, finally in focus, we're seeing calls for police review boards, we're seeing calls for the fundamental freedoms of all Americans um, to finally be taken seriously and held to the same level. I keep wondering whether this time around we have legitimate reasons to think that things will be improved or if we're still just going to be living in a cyclical world, right? We protest this now, then we kind of return to a status quo until the next violent act. What are your thoughts on that? I, I don't know if it'll be different. I mean, no, nothing has really changed without people who look like the oppressors standing up for the right of the oppressed. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King, other civil rights leaders, Malcolm X, they had a uh, a, a, a marginally sympathetic ear in Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. You know, Jacob Riley, the one of the only, you know, Olympic Olympians, you know, who've been selected so far, you know, the Olympic um, marathon um, men's second place, he put a, a, a statement out on Instagram, but God, I haven't seen many, you know, white runners, white skiers, white action sport people come out strongly. At the end of the day, it's like everybody's afraid of their standing within their own community. And if you speak out against your community, you're afraid that you might lose sponsorships or you might lose jobs. I mean, this moment is, is the, 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 the power of this moment to, to create change or simply, like you said, disappear um, into the history books really relies on people who are, in this case, white, you know, who come from a, a from a place of more privilege um, than their African-American brothers and sisters coming out and standing in support, you know, going to a protest, even putting something out positively on Instagram is helpful. So it's, it's, it's beholden to those of us who enjoy the spaces. I'm one of them. I, I grew up, nobody knew what I was. I mean, I'm Indian, but nobody knew what I was. So I didn't face systemic racism. I was in a middle-class family in beautiful, uh, beautiful East Bay. Um, in California, you know, I skied, I surfed, I ran, I had an idyllic childhood, 
for those of us who recognize that we occupy stolen land, for those of us who recognize that our ancestors built their generational wealth on land stolen by others, on bodies of other people, for those of us like myself whose parents immigrated here in the 70s, I know that I am more privileged than people that have been here longer than I have, that, have a, uh, that are more American by virtue of their contributions to this country than I am just by virtue that I am not black and I am not Native American. So for those of us who, who kind of recognize that, you know, we've got a lot to be grateful for, you know, we've, and there's a, a, a lot we can do with that gratitude and that understanding, and we can say, we want other people to live with the same peace and dignity that we experience daily. There's no reason why they shouldn't. Peace and dignity, that they're, and they're available in infinite quantity. It's not like I've got to give, give up anything that I've got. I just want you to feel like a human being. And, and what's that going to mean? You know, I'm not going to have to sell my house. I'm not going to have to sell my car. You know, these types of changes are very, very simple for us to make, but it starts with a little bit of recognition and then a tiny little bit of action. Well, you just used the word dignity and it strikes me that that is a real important word and concept in thinking about this new film, Gather, uh, to bring it back to the film. I think the current situation in so many ways, right? Like, that might be one of the best words we could be talking about, dignity and freedom, right? And I guess it's weird to be talking in a conversation that's supposed to be about like indigenous food systems that we're also talking about protests and appropriate protests and the rest. And yet, like, I don't know how to like disentangle these things right now. Yeah, you know, like you're like a brother and, you know, being able to have this kind of conversation that's, you know, painful to have maybe, you know, in, in, invoke some, some emotions in people that, that they don't want to feel or they felt too much of, you know, this is what needs to happen. It's like conversations, understanding that you can admit that you don't know something. Mm -hmm. You can't admit that you can't relate to the pain of, you know, African-Americans and, and to protesters, to the underserved and to the oppressed, you know, that, that's okay. It's like, you know, the, the movie Gather, we, we chose that title, Gather, because that's kind of what we all need to do. It's like, we're not saying, you know, we're, we're, we're showing up to, to hear from somebody. We're not going to a rally. We're, 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 we're just coming together and we're coming together as equals. And where we go from there is really up to us. If I asked you, what would be sort of your ideal response to this film or outcome from this film? Do you have an answer to that? Yeah, you know, that, that is a great question because the film is inherently, you know, a, we're basically telling people to kind of stay out of the lane of, of, of Native Americans, like let them do what they've always wanted to do. But that doesn't happen in this country. It's like we need to to kind of, show support and showing support is recognizing that there are native americans all throughout the united states and that we are all on someone else's land the first thing is just learn whose land you're on learn about the history of your land i mean there's a great organization called natives outdoors and they're 
they're trying to reclaim and rename all these mountains that have taken on the names of, of settlers and colonizers, but that have had names for thousands of years. So wherever you ski, just, you know, it's fun. Just Google the, the Native American name where you're skiing or, or recreating, you know, learn a little bit about those trails and understand that, you know, much of the trail system in the United States, you know, was built on trails that human beings used. Even Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, they found 20,000-year-old artifacts and they proved that Sunset Boulevard was a trading route. It was used by human beings for thousands of years. Just with that recognition that almost anywhere you go in the U.S. has been explored before, um, or lived in and enjoyed before, and we're just part of a continuum of that. So it's, it's just recognition, um, feeling a little gratitude for where you are um, right here and now, and pledging that when you see someone who is uh, not getting treated fairly, that you do whatever you can within your power to, 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 to recognize that and make things right. Well, Sanjay, as always, um, a pleasure. Any day I get to talk to you is a good day, and um, people should check out this film, Gather. And why don't we just end by reminding people how they, how and when they'll be able to see this film? Oh, yeah. There's a, the, the first opportunity will be digitally via the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. If you just Google Human Rights Watch Film Festival New York, it'll pull up the page. And, uh, or you can go to our Instagram site, which is at Gather Film. And you know, there's, a, there's ticket links there. And you can watch any time between June 11th and June 20th. And we're going to have a, a live streamed Q&A on the, in the evening of Saturday, June 20th. Perfect. I'll let you get going. Um, thank you, as always. Oh, Jonathan, you are the best. I, I love what you do. I love the community that you've created. And uh, I can't wait to uh, see you again in person. I know, I know. Well, you know, when Renan and I come out for the squirrel hunting documentary, uh, maybe that will be the next occasion. But uh, if not, then I'll just have to get to New York uh, for some other reason. That would be that would be awesome. Sanjay, uh, pleasure. Take good care of yourself, and um, we'll talk to you real soon. Thanks so much, Jonathan. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Sanjay for the conversation. And again, we will have the link in the show notes to this episode so you can find the film, and you can also watch the trailer in the show notes on our website, or you can get more news about the film and future releases of it on social media at the handle gather film thanks everybody please take good care of yourself and everybody else and we will talk to you again next week 